Okay, team, exciting news. Your buddy Matt here has finally realized a lifelong dream of becoming a professional athlete at the tender age of 47. Uh, we have a new partner, Vessel Surfboards and Paddleboards, and they are sponsoring me as I begin a quest to paddleboard from here to Catalina and back next year during the Catalina race. I believe it's about 30 miles, but I got to check, you know, 30 miles, 40 miles, all the same. I'm going to get it done. And uh, that makes me a professional athlete getting paid to do a sport. So by technicality, I'm a professional athlete and I'm very excited about that. Vessel Surfboards and paddle boards are excellent. I've used a few different paddle boards, and this one is by far the best. My kids use their surfboards. They're excellent. So support our sponsor. Go out and try them. That's Vessel, V-E-S-L. All right, guys. Okay, guys, thanks for joining us. In just a second, we have Dr. Charles Johnson coming up. He's the author of Grand, A Grandparent's Wisdom for a Happy Life, and about 24 other books. And uh, talking to him was a fascinating conversation. You're going to enjoy it. But before we get to that, I wanted to do one parenting question. Okay, and we got Emil in Arizona. And he says, I want to know what your take is on Netflix cuties. Um, I'm sure most of you have heard about this, but I thought this was a good uh, question to take regarding a, 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 you know, parenting. Cuties is a story about a young girl, 11 years of age, from a very devout Muslim family who emigrates to France, and her family, um, her father, is about to take on a second wife, and her mother is very distraught from this and very distracted. And this this movie is a nice dichotomy between like the far left and the far right and the problems that emerge from both of them, um, from this very restrictive, fundamental religion. This girl is repressed and she starts to seek ways to break out of it. She goes to school. She's 11 years old. And she finds these girls who are part of this overtly sexual dance troupe, something that clearly 11-year-old girls should not be doing. Um, and, and, and the movies, you know, it's, it's too sexy. It's too graphic. Um, these 11 year old girls are, are twerking and wearing inappropriate outfits. And at one point the girl shows up to school. And if you just joined in the movie at that point, you would see this girl who's wearing this very grown up outfit. Her hair is all teased out. She's all made up. And you would think, wow, that high school senior is dressed way too provocatively. There'd be no way to know she's 11 years old. Okay? So this this movie opened to very mixed reviews and out came people who wanted to cancel Netflix. And you know me, I don't support cancel culture. I think it's stupid if you don't like something, don't view it. If you don't like something somebody says, don't listen to that person. Um, we don't need to cancel every little thing that offends us. Now, this is a little bit different because people feel it's, you know, it's it's uh, encouraging pedophilia. Now, there seems to be two predominating opinions that have come out about this film. There's the one group of people who want to cancel Netflix. They feel this is disgusting and it's it's fodder for pedophiles. And then there's the other group who want to call this brilliant art. Um like with most things, I don't think everything is so black and white either, or I think there's a more nuanced approach to this. And what I saw is 
both sides are a little bit right. Um, this this film brings attention to something we should all be made aware of as parents. This is a big problem in society of the internet raising young kids, parents not being involved enough in their children's lives and children acting way too adult-like too soon. And also, we're living in a world where um, where child sexual slavery is is actually going on. It's actually a problem, and it's not something that's being talked about a lot, except in like weird chat forums like 4chan and, and QAnon. Um, and I'm not one of those people, but I would like to see this issue get some attention because this is this is children who are being hurt, and pedophilia is a problem in this world. Now, so it, it does draw attention to the issue. And I think that's good. Now, would would it have drawn attention to the issue without being so overtly sexual and graphic? And the truth of that is probably it would not have. It would not have gotten the same attention if, if that poster wasn't graphic and if, if the dancing wasn't so provocative, it would not have gotten as much attention. It would have not as raised a much as much attention to this issue. And for that, I think I think that's a good thing. However, we have to look at these girls who actually acted in the film. They're 11-year-old children. And we're living in a society where we know that children cannot consent to sexual activity. If they cannot consent to sexual activity, then they should not be able to consent to um, acting in such a sexual manner and, and, and selling sexuality to an audience. Um, you have these four these four young girls, these four young actresses who were in the film, and there were probably a hundred other actresses who auditioned and did, did not get the part. Um, that's not good. That, that will definitely have negative effects on these young girls, I believe. So I think that trumps everything. And no, I think, I think the film overall is a thumbs down. Um, that said, you should check it out for yourself and form your own opinion, but I think it raises lots of interesting questions about society in general and how we view children and sexuality. You know, I, I find I find it preposterous and I find a lot of double standards and hypocrisy um, in this area. Like you look at something like Victoria's Secret. Victoria's Secret will take teenage girls, sometimes as young as 15, 16, 17 years old, put them in sexy lingerie and strut them out on magazines and billboards and on runways to sell the idea of sex to grown men and women. That's wrong. If these, if these children are below the age of consent, they should not be able to be using these children for their sexuality to sell us products regarding sexuality. It's wrong. And they do it in music. I remember in college when, when Britney Spears came out with her first signal, with her first single nobody initially knew how old she was. Everybody thought she was hot. She was a child. And you can see now in Brittany as an adult that she suffered some consequences of being sexualized at such a young age. So it's a very important issue that needs more discussion. So yeah, I, I recommend you check it out and come to your own conclusion. Maybe you don't watch it with your kids, but check it out and see what you think about it and get back to me. So with that, uh, I hope you enjoy the show. We're going to get into it with Dr. Johnson. Hey guys, this podcast is brought to you by CBDMD.com. 
uh, great high quality CBD products for your aches and pains. You use the code word that dad presents for 15% off and you put a nickel in your boy's pocket and help me feed them kids. Um, I just got back from the Pacific. I was doing some prone paddle boarding. Um, it's basically a long surfboard. You lay down and you paddle with your hands. I'm, I'm trying to build up to do the annual race to Catalina and back, which is about 30 miles. And as it stands, I can do about a mile. I got a long way to go. Um, but I'll tell you what, without those CBD products, you guys know I got titanium plates on my neck and shoulder. I wouldn't be able to go five yards. Um, Laying down on my belly, looking up out at the ocean and holding that position while paddling would be excruciating for me. CBD has got me to a point where I can not only assume that position, but I can paddle for a mile and I'm going to keep at it and I'm going to do that Catalina race by next year. So go to the website, use the code the dad presents, get that high quality CBD and uh, help help your boy Matt make some money. All right. So... Uh, all right, Let's guys, thanks it. for joining again today. We were absent last week, and I'm sorry about that, but, you know, the dad's got life, too. Uh, today, we got Dr. Charles Johnson. Um, he's the author of many, many books, most recently author of the book called Grand, which is a grandparent's wisdom for a happy life, which is a very uh, pertinent thing to what this show is about. So, Dr. Johnson, thanks for coming on. How you doing? Pretty good. Thank you for having me on. Good. Yeah, excellent. I appreciate it. Um, right off the top, um, so I, you know, I've, I've, I'm about halfway through the book. I'm really enjoying it. Um, I, think, I think there's some great advice. But right off the top, as soon as I opened it, the first thing I noticed is the subtitle is um, A Grandparent's Wisdom for a Happy Life. But you say right away that you're not so sure wisdom should be passed down to your grandkids. And you're talking about your grandkid, Emery, because he's going to live a different life than you with a different set of problems and whatnot. Um, and I think that's that's one aspect of parenting that's difficult for a lot of parents, which is um, realizing that they don't have the all the answers and, and to just kind of let go of ego and not try to direct every aspect of their kid's life. Um, how, how, how do you become a better listener to what's going on with your kid? Well, you know, this is what the book is really is really about. Are there timeless perennial items of wisdom? that we can pass from one generation to the next. Now right. in the in the book Grand I raised the question, can I really do that? Because the world I grew up in when my you know when I was 8 years old as my grandson is 8 years old right now, mm -hmm. the 50s were very different. Oh, yeah. The 50s and the 60s were very very different just as the time that my parents grew up in the 20s, right? Was very different too. But nevertheless, I I thought about it, you know, and I thought about it and I came up with 10 items that I think I can share with my grandson, his generation, and any reader of this book that may be able to stand the test of time. The very first one, which you've probably read already, sure. is know thyself. Mm -hmm. That's probably the oldest wisdom in the Western world. Know thyself. There will be all kinds of people in my grandson's life who will try to tell him who and what he is. The only person who can know that is him, and not for all time. As he passes through the different seasons of his life, right, childhood, teenage years, young adulthood, middle age, you know, um, he's going to have to re-ask re that question again and again. Who am I? 
Um, so you, you know, it isn't a it's not, not like closing a door on the question, right. but it has to be revisited during every stage of life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Um, I, I mean, the world has changed from the time when I was a kid, which was you know the eighties to to my kids. So so it really applies. And know thyself. Um, you 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 have another chapter actually that kind of relates to what you're talking about is um, not letting people put you into a box and define who you are. Um, and in this modern era, like the last three or four years, identity politics has been front and center and it wants <clears throat> to put everybody into this category with this subcategory. So how do you teach your kids to like kind of separate themselves from those identifying facts and just, you know, identify how they want to identify or be who they want to be? Well, as I said, in the book, when I was raising Emery's mother and uh, my, you know, my son, I had two kids, right? A boy and a girl. I always emphasized to them that there has never been anybody in this world like them, and there will never be anybody in this world like them again. So this book is very strong on the importance of individuality, knowing yourself as an individual appreciating yourself as an individual and not, as you say, allowing others to put you in a little box for the sake of their convenience. Right. Our lives are far, far too rich for that. The great writer, Ralph Ellison, author of the classic work, Invisible Man, put it this way. The thing Americans have to learn over and over again is that they are individuals and have the responsibility of individual vision. Yeah, that yeah. is very central, I think, to what we mean by American identity. So yeah, I've been really opposed to the dangers of identity politics for my entire writing life. Um, you don't get art out of identity politics. No. What you get is ideology and agitprop. You know, only out of the individual vision um, of the artist Will you get something that has integrity? Yeah, I think that's an important message that's that's being lost, um, especially in the last couple of years. Um, you know, I, I grew up being taught to to be an individual, to think for yourself, to uh, do do you know do what you think is right. Just because somebody jumps off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? You know what I mean? But when you're when you're identity identity politics, and you're in this group, and and it's just too narrow of a focus and doesn't leave any room for experimentation or crossing over. Um, one thing you, you talked about in the book that, that I really liked is you talk about playing Pokemon with your grandson. <laughs> all, all kids nowadays, they're, they're into that Pokemon. Like, <laughs> be honest, yeah. it drives me crazy. But um, you quote Wendell Holmes and stating that Men don't grow, men do not quit playing because they grow old. They grow old because they quit playing. And I've heard that before. Um, I love that. Now, my 11 year old, he loves like, he's a very imaginative kid. He loves to go out in the backyard and battle imaginary dragons. And I'll do that with him. And some of our friends, I've had friends comment that he's, he's a little bit um, less sophisticated for his age, which is true. But I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. He's 11. I feel that Right now, kids are growing up with the, in the age of the internet. Kids are growing up too fast. Um, is there anything that we can do to kind of slow that down and let kids be kids again? Well, I would really, I, I insist 
that my grandson have that space, that breathing space to just be a kid. You know, he goes to the French American School of Puget Sound here, and mm-hmm. his curriculum is heavy on math. Uh, Two thirds of the classes are taught in French. He has coding a couple of times a week, wow. right? But he also, like his friends, enjoys Pokemon and Minecraft and right. you know things of the imagination that are appropriate for a kid. We don't want to let that die in our children. We don't want them to become cynical, you know, like adults, too right. early in life. You know, I, I think we really have bound to, to happen anyway, right? It's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, they're going to get disappointments. They're going to get a reality check as they grow older. But let them during that period before puberty, okay, that's when it kicks in, usually around middle school, let them just enjoy, let them enjoy life and have a sense of the mystery and wonder of life. Not to lose that, mystery and wonder. Because when you get older, you realize, well, if you read science at all, we only know 5% of what is out there in the universe, only 5%. The rest is dark energy and dark matter, mm-hmm. which we can't measure. We cannot directly experience. We don't know what it is. We don't know what it is. Stars, galaxies, planets, everything that's out there. It's only 5% of what we can directly perceive. So we do live in the midst, in my humble opinion, of a great mystery. Mm-hmm. And as long as we never lose that sense of wonder, you know, and curiosity, uh, I think life always will be fresh for a young person and for somebody who's older as well. Yeah. Yeah. When we, when we hammer the imagination out of our kids, I mean, it it happens naturally as you get older anyway, because you're, you're forced into this um, pragmatic, logical way of thinking. So it naturally happens over time, but all the great art comes from creativity and most of the great events, inventions come from creative thinking and, and experimentation. So it's not, you know, you're, you your kid running around playing Pokemon um, or battling imaginary dragons in the backyard like my kid does isn't necessarily a waste of time. Oh, absolutely not. If you recall when um, Star Wars came out, the first one. Oh, I remember. I saw yeah, it in the like, theater. I was eight, yeah, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I took my son at the time to see it. He was pretty young, too. He was maybe five or something like that. But at any rate, um, you know, I, I remember, um, you know, what, what George Lucas said. He said he was hoping a young person would see that, right? And then one day become an astronaut, you know, uh, and maybe one day go to another world and and tell reporters, you know what? I was looking for a Wookiee. That's really why I went, you know, did all this study of science sure. and became an astronaut. Yeah, the imagination is, is crucial. It's crucial for technology. It's crucial uh, for science even. If you go back, I would guess, to the 1920s uh, when we finally – realized there was a quantum realm, right? Mm-hmm. Those physicists at the time would tell their students, you know, think about what we're looking at, these strange um, uh, subatomic pro- you know, particles and the rest in terms of poetry and, and literature, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the word quark, the word quark, which was uh, con- uh, coined by um, scientist uh, uh, Murray Gelman, comes from Finnegan's Rake from James Joyce's Finnegan's Way. That's where he pulled the word quark, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you open up your mind. You don't let your mind become fixed in, in these little boxes so that you don't look over into another box. Because finally, 
you know, all those boxes are just our easy ways of demarcating things. They're artificial, right? Because it's all part of human consciousness and human life. Right. Everything, everything is connected. Everything is interrelated. You gave the example of, of Quirk. Well, I mean, there's many examples in history of um, science fiction being ahead of science, like almost whether it's predictive of science or it inspires science. I don't know. But, you know, we, we see the iPad is in old Star Trek episodes. Right. So, so science fiction, I think, goes hand in hand with, with development and technology. They're yeah, almost like hand in glove. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm supposed to be a literary writer, but yeah. I cut my teeth in the 50s on science fiction fiction uh, and, and movies, for example. I mean, I had an original copy of Man in the High Castle when it came out. I was in a science fiction oh, wow. book club. And mm-hmm. I'm really sorry I let that book get away from me. It was a first <laughs> edition, right? But what it was is it stimulated my imagination. And that's why I, that's why I love science fiction. Yeah, yeah. Um, switching gears a little bit, you talk, you, you, you talk about your father in the book. Um, you said that in the 50s, he had his life savings stolen, uh, money he'd, he'd saved up for buying a house. And after that, he went hard to work. He was working three jobs to take care of your family. That's right. Um, my, my grandfather came to this country from, from Italy, and he built a business from poverty. You know, he came out of poverty like most immigrants. Um, I also had my life savings stolen at the time my, my first kid was born, and I had to build it all back up over again. So you, you go back often to the idea of hard work, the theme of hard work in the book. Um, and I feel that hard work is something that Americans used to really value. And now working hard is sometimes looked at as um, something we shouldn't necessarily have to do. Or if you're working hard, you're not being beat fairly. Um, there seems to be a lot more of blaming going on in the world than, than personal accountability. And I don't think that's good for humanity in general. No, I don't think it's good either. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about our rights, you know, as, as Americans, and, and we have rights that are very specific. But we also have to talk about our responsibilities uh, as Americans and as citizens. Now, one of the things I constantly thanked my dad for was showing me how to work. Not to be afraid of work. And also... Dr. Johnson, hang on one second. Your camera, you got to tilt it back up. I'm just getting your oh, belly right now. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it, uh, I have it taped up here. Okay. Um, Go on. Yeah, your dad? We're, we're back in business. Yeah, I should thank my dad a lot uh, for teaching me how to work and to see and, and helping me see that whatever I did, it could be great or small, was really creating a portrait of myself. Right. Uh, so it was very, very important for to approach things with the right attitude, the right intentionality, um, with the right mindfulness. He worked very hard. I watched him every single day work to support my mom, you know, and me. I was an only child. So it was just the two of us uh, and my dad. Um, but that example uh, was probably one of the most important lessons I learned in my life because I could apply then the ethics of work. To other areas. I became an artist, right? I became a professor. Uh, I became um, a writer, for example, but it's all work. <laughs> That's what it finally is. So you have to know how to apply yourself in a particular way. And, you know, you need somebody to model that for you yes. in your life. Yes. In, in most cases, you know, for boys, it's a dad yep. who's around. Yep. 
Um, yeah, uh, so important for, you know, this, this podcast is called The Dad Presents. And um, dads are important. And I, I, I feel like they're being devalued a bit in society. Yeah. Um, I think most successful young men grew up with a healthy father or at least a healthy father figure, someone to look up to and model themselves after. And, and you, you, you talk about not wanting to disappoint your dad. And most, most kids are like that. You can see that in young boys. They want, they want their dad to be proud of them. And, and I think that's a healthy impulse most of the time. Um, fathers not being in the home it's like the number one correlated thing with whether or not somebody ends up in jail, whether or not they get an education, whether or not they're successful. And we have a problem in society nowadays as compared to 50 years ago, the, the number of people growing up without a father has increased like 200 times, 200 fold. Yeah. Um, what, what can we do about that on an individual level and on a societal level to, to change this problem? I've been thinking about this question my entire life because of the kind of dad that I had. I felt I need to, you know, measure up to the standard that he set and and do better. Okay. Because I had advantages and opportunities that he made possible that he, you know, did not have. I do think we beat up a lot on men in our society. So men deserve to be beat up sure. on, okay? Sure. Uh, because their behavior is less than um, impeccable. But I do think if we're going to have a healthy society, we have to appreciate what it is that fathers bring to families. Black Americans right now, and the figure might be higher than what I'm going to state, most black, 70% of black American kids are in single parent homes. You know, the father isn't there. I find that to be very, very disturbing. It's not easy to be a dad. It's not easy to be a mom, all right? But I do believe that if you're going to teach your son how to be a man, it takes a man to do that, you know? And if you don't have a man in the household, that young man is going to go out in the street and he's going to find a male role model right. that, you know, he can imitate or he can learn from. That, that male role model might not be the best person for him to be, you know, you know, imitating after all. So mothers and fathers both are critical. And, you know, I will say this too, grandparents as well you know, in the shaping of a young person's life, male or female. Mm-hmm. Yep. Man, my grandfather was a huge influence in my life. Pull, pull your camera back up. It keeps, keeps dropping oh, okay. down. Okay. All right. Um, got, I got it taped here. All right. We're, we're back in business. Yeah. My, my grandfather was a, a huge influential person in my life. So yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be a dad, but a, a boy needs a strong male role model. And I don't, I don't believe that's a sexist position to take. It's, you know, a, Girls also need dads. Boys and girls also need moms. Like you get Absolutely. something from each parent that is that is crucial, and that that's not the same thing about um, uh, gay relationships. That's fine. They they can provide that as well, but it's a two person job. You know what I mean? It's a two raising kids is tough business. It's a two person job. Um, you you uh one one rule that I really like that you gave in your book, or I guess it's one piece of advice. You you say um. It's called the chapter you entitled "Open Mouth Already a Big Mistake," and this this one hit me because this this is one that I can learn from, right? Um, and you say that before we speak, we need to ask ourselves three things. Um, number one is what we're going to say true. Number two is it necessary to say it, and number three is saying it going to cause any harm. Um, I think that's I think that's hugely important in today's politically charged climate where people are just like. 
not being chill and, and not <laughs> thinking about what they say. Yeah. Um, it's great advice, but at the same time, when you're in, in the middle of a conversation with somebody, who really sit, stops and thinks about these three rules and plays them through their head before they respond? Well, I'm afraid we don't do that enough, and certainly in political discourse, it's just the opposite of that. The three gates are, yes, is it, is it true what you're about to say, right? Is it necessary, that's the second gate, to say it at this time? And the third gate is, will it do no harm? Now, you will find those three gates talked about across many cultures. I've seen it expressed in Muslim cultures, in Hindu cultures. Um, for example, the poet Rumi, uh, he uh, expresses the same uh, three gates in, in his work. We have to be very careful, it seems to me, about how we speak. I'm Buddhist. Uh, I'm a practicing Buddhist. And so one of the things on the Eightfold Path is right speech. I'm always concerned about that. It's good to stop and pause before you speak. Think about what it is you're going to say right? And what impact that might have on another person. It might potentially hurt them, right? So don't say it, right? Or it might be inaccurate. We'll try to make it accurate. You know, I don't want to kill conversation, you know, with the three gates. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, give ourselves a little, you know, a little room to breathe here and have some fun and enjoy ourselves. But speech is powerful, right? Language is powerful, uh, you can wound with words. And so, again, as a Buddhist, as a human being, just simply as a human being, I think we need to be cautious. One of the things we've lost, I think, Matt, in the last 20 years, it's been lost for a while, is civility. Oh, yeah. Civility. We don't even talk about civility anymore. Mm -mm. You see political discourse, so much of it is based upon character assassination. Yeah, and I think it's very painful for me to listen to that, not listening to the other person's argument and responding to it, but rather attacking their character as a way of destroying, you know, their argument. This is not good. And it's not a good model for our children to see and our grandchildren. No, no. Sometimes the things you say um, might hurt someone, but they're necessary things to say, but your intention should not be to hurt. And I think that very often now is the intention. People, they get mad and they, they lash out with something that they know will hurt and that's their intention is to hurt. Yeah, that's wrong. Um, there, there's a way that you can do this. You can say, listen, you just did that and that's bad and you're a bad person, right? You could say it that way mm -hmm. or you could do it this way. You could say, you know, I think that what happened here that you just did uh, is not the exact best thing. Uh, and maybe it's better to do it this way. In other words, maybe you condemn the sin, but not the sinner. Right. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. You don't have to attack the person. It's the action. And if yep. you put it, you know, express yeah, it, it's the difference yeah, between like when somebody says, uh, for example, if someone would say you're a racist versus that line of thinking seems a little racist. Let me show you how you can reconsider. Right? Yeah, I think, I, I think that's a mistake. I mean, maybe somebody is a racist, but I think when we use that term so loosely and slap it on virtually everything that we don't like, that first of all, it, 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 its meaning begins to decrease. It isn't, it isn't as effective as it might be. Um, and if you say somebody to somebody that they're a racist or a sexist or a homophobe, they're going to become defensive. 
you know, that's, that's the only just, natural reaction. Yeah. yeah, that's human nature. They're going to become defensive, and then maybe they'll counterattack. And once you're in that kind of a situation, people need to step back from it. Just get quiet, step back, and see if they can reestablish a means of dialogue that isn't wounding the other person. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I mean, that's great advice. I, I, I think, you know, that's not just advice for grandkids. That's advice for, for everybody. We've, we've lost touch with how to effectively communicate. Uh, some of it is, is the invention of social media, I think, because we're, we're talking to each other without seeing each other face to face. So it, it takes yep. away uh, visual cues are very important when you're communicating. It takes that away. So you say things you normally wouldn't. Part of it, I think, is the media. They fan the flames of of division because they profit from it. It's a lot of reasons, but it's, it's very good advice. So, so thank you for putting that out there. Um, all right. So you have, you have something talking about life is not personal. You say life is not personal, perfect or permanent. That's another one of your rules. Um, and it advises kids about, you know, again, about the, the, the box that putting kids into a predetermined box. Um, but I also take it as when you're saying life is not permanent. We're also talking about pain. Like kids can sometimes get kid, not even kids, adults, everybody can get caught up in a tragedy and a, a cycle of pity in themselves where they just think this is the worst thing that's ever happened. How am I ever going to get out of that? And it's that kind of thinking that is a downward spiral to never getting out of that. Yeah. So well, go on. Yes. Go, well, I was going to say those, the, that, that phrase, life is not personal. Uh, permanent or perfect. That formulation is from a wonderful teacher named Ruth King. Um, I, I found that in one of her books, but it's also just generally true. Um, life is not going to be perfect. That's something we all have to ultimately learn. It isn't permanent either, because everything, if you think about it long enough, is impermanent, including this universe that one, one day will suffer, you know, proton death. So we, we live with that understanding. Now, one of the things I try to say in the book about my grandson or to my grandson is he may find himself at a particular moment in his life where he's really down. You know, everywhere you look, you know, there's no help. You know, and people don't understand you, you know. Um, um, maybe you're broke, maybe the, you know, bill collectors at the door. I've been there. Okay. Um, yeah. you know, just everything is going south. One of the things he will benefit from at a moment like that is realizing, yes, this is impermanent too. This bad situation has to change at some point when you hit bottom, there's nowhere to go, but up. All right. And I know this from personal experience many, many, many years ago uh, in my 20s. So if you can just hang on and write it out, things will change. That is also true of good things. Sure. The happy moments, yep. you realize they're going to change too. It's fleeting. Yeah. So it, it's, it's good not to get too high when you're, things are going your way or you, know, you think they're going your way and not to get too low when they're All not right. going your way. That's, I mean, that's what that's that's what bipolar people are right they, they're they're manic and they're super happy and everything's great and then they bottom out now the, the there's this like a brain chemical thing but it's the same with everybody oh. like yeah don't get too high don't get too low because it's 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 gonna change um and it, yeah, it, it, it's kind of like the the glass is half full type of mentality like it, it's bad now but it'll get better 
right? And yeah. and accepting that as fact because it it really is fact um, can be a big reliever of stress and and personal burden. Um, you I'll you, tell you, I'll tell you one one other thing about that too. If somebody, I, I just read this in a, in a little note somebody sent to me, and I thought it was really quite good. If you can live in the present. Even if it's a bad or happy present at the moment, just live in the present, not in the past, not in the future. Because if you're living, you know, if you find you're depressed, it's because you're living in the past, something that happened. Mm -hmm. If you're anxious, it's because you're living in the future, which hasn't come yet. But if you can situate yourself right here, right now in the present moment, right, I think you won't be too depressed and you won't be too anxious. Just appreciate the moment for what it is. Right. And it, yeah. things will change if they're bad. Yeah. I, I living in the past is not a problem for me at all. Cause I, I, I forget things. <laughs> so I, I, I move on. I move on quickly. Like I let go of things. I move on very quickly. That's never been a problem for me. I'm tragedy happens. I can let it go. But the, the what you said about the future, my family suffers from anxiety. And I believe that's what it is. You're worried about tomorrow. What are you going to do? What I, I got to plan this thing. I got to, what's my next move? Um, and I think most people who suffer from anxiety, that's what it is. They're planners. They're, they want to, they want to figure everything out. Um, and some of that's important. A little bit of anxiety is healthy, but you got to be able to step away from that intermittently and just, and just be, and it's, it's so hard. I mean, that's a, that's takes a lot of personal work. It's a personal daily struggle for a lot of people. Yeah, it is. Well, we, we want to plan ahead. Um, if we fail to plan ahead, you know, we may suffer pain, you know, and, and, you know, disappointment. So yeah, we have to plan ahead, but we need not get all wrapped up and bent out of shape. Right. Mm -hmm. About something that hasn't happened yet. You do your best as you can again here now in the present moment. Yeah. And the future should take care of itself. Yes. When coronavirus hit, I had a um, I had a a saying I would put out that I, I was kind of proud of. Didn't really catch on, but I, I I said prepare, don't panic. Like what's going on here? What can I do about it? Then I'm going to do those things, and then you just that's it. You did what you can do. That's it, right? You can only yeah. do what you can do. Figure yeah. out what you can do. Do the thing. Move on. Absolutely. That's wisdom. Uh, yeah. Do your best in the present moment and then let it go. Let it go. Yep. That's, and that's for a lot of people, one. it's hard to let go. Mm-hmm. Sure is. Um, you, you talk about, you have, a, you have a chapter that says experience something beautiful every day. And this is where I could really see the, the Buddhist philosophy coming out. Like this sounds like something one of my Buddhist friends would say. Um, it sounds a lot like stop and smell the roses, which is also good advice. <laughs> right, right. Um, but how do people realistically, when they're working two jobs, barely making ends meet, they got two kids to take care of, they might be from a single parent home, how do you how do you do that? How do you take the time to experience something beautiful every day? Well, I tell you, you know, one of the things I'm I've come to learn recently that's really important is what's called self-care. If you have all these responsibilities and duties to others, as you will, if you're a parent, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe you're a grandparent taking care of, you know, uh, your your son or daughter's, you know, child, you know, and you've got all these responsibilities and taking care of other people, but you have to really take care of yourself as well, or you won't be any serve of any service, you know, to them at all. So self care is very important, and I think one of those things that does for me 
lead to self-care is the experience of something beautiful every day. Now, what, what, what do I mean by that? I mean that the world is coming at us every day, you know, in terms of tweets and, you know, um, news programs and life in general was something ugly, <laughs> okay? Uh, ugly, evil, and false. So we're inundated with that. I don't care what it is you consider to be beautiful. I think you have a right to experience that every single day of your life, whether it's music, whether it's nature, whether it's art, whatever you consider to be beautiful and renewing. Because if we don't do that, we, we find ourselves just inundated with negativity. Yeah. And that is not a healthy mental state to be in. So, yeah, experience something beautiful every day as yeah. you define it. Well, yeah, it, it reminds me of what you said is um, taking care of yourself. It reminds me of when you get on an airplane and you get the whole speech about give yourself the oxygen before you help your kid, right? If you're <laughs> right, not taking yeah. care of yourself, you're not, you're not doing the job you can be for your kids as a parent. So every parent, you, you know, you might be working two jobs. You might, you might be a single parent. You got to find 10 minutes a day to do something for you. you just just ten, 10 minutes. That's all you might need. Yeah. yeah. Um, you have now this one, this one makes me smile. You have a rule called you're already perfect and whole which, again, very, very, uh, heavy Buddhist vibes there. Um, but it also sounds like something that modern parents just bathe their kids in, which you're, you're the perfect child. There's nothing wrong with you. And, and it's important to positively reaffirm our children. Um, but at the same time, we want to we want to toughen them up, and we want to teach them to have skills. So as I read the chapter, when I, when I read that title, I was like, "Oh boy, here we go." But then I read the chapter, and in it, you're constantly pushing your grandson Emery to to better himself. So, what do you mean by you're already perfect? Well, I think a good default position for any human being is to realize, yeah, you are already perfect and whole. It takes an entire planet. <laughs> to sustain you, okay? Uh, there's nothing that needs to be added to your being for you to experience happiness. But you'll notice that chapter says, you are already perfect and whole, but dot, dot, dot. Right. You can't stretch further. You can always do more to realize your potential in mind, body, and spirit. You can always do more. But, you know, you shouldn't beat yourself up. You should realize, okay, you know, I, uh, yeah, I don't need anything uh, external to myself for happiness. However, I do have potential as a human being that needs to be developed in three areas, mind, body, possibly, and spirit. Okay, very good. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, I mean, the, the title of the chapter, I read it, I was like, oh, man, but... I've read the chapter. I'm like, yeah, I agree with pretty much all of that. Yeah. Uh, Emery's a lucky kid. It seems like he's got a, he's got a good support system around him. I, I want to ask you one more thing and then I'm going to let you go. Um, I saw one, I, I was looking through your list of books. I saw one of them was entitled Dr. King's refrigerator and other bedtime story. I just made me curious. It sounds like it's a, a kid's book. I don't know. What, yeah. What's that about? No, it's a collection of short stories. I think that was my third short story collection. The uh, story, uh, Dr. King's Refrigerator, is one of about eight or nine in the collection. And so I use that also for the title of the collection. It's about a night in young Dr. King's life before 
he becomes Dr. King before uh, Rosa Parks gives up her uh, her seat, you know, on the bus. In other words, he's a new, newly, well, he, he's all but dissertation. He hasn't finished his uh, PhD yet at Boston University. And yet he's got all the job requirements of a new minister, right? So he's he's under the gun. And he's newly married, too. So he's got to figure out how to be a husband, you know, to Coretta. And so this is one night in his life when he has an epiphany. Um, King himself never had that religious conversion moment that people talk about, you know, where they get happy or whatever it is that they do. Uh, he never had that. He was a trained theologian. Um, but that, so, but one night, and this is real history, uh, after his home was bombed, mm -hmm. uh, he did have distress. And he, he went in the kitchen and made himself a cup of coffee. And um, he, that was the night, he says, of his kitchen conversion because he said God spoke to him, right? Uh, and told him, this is what you got to do. Well, I changed that a little bit. Um, I have him go into his kitchen. He's really tired. It's before, you know, my, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott. And he looks at his refrigerator and has an epiphany about the interconnectedness of all life. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that that caught, that caught my eye. I, I think I might uh might snag that one and check it out. I think you I think you like that story. Yeah. All right. Um. Hey, fascinating talking to you. You got some. You got some great perspective. Um, I got something out of your book, so I'm I'm gonna tell our viewers, our listeners. You know, check this book out if you're raising kids. Uh, they're good rules. I mean, it's hard to argue with any of them. You know, I I try to look at things with uh little bit of a devil's advocate eye but they were all they're all pretty solid advice um and i definitely recommend the book is there anything else uh, where can they find you anything you want to promote anything i want to promote that's the most recent book uh grand it's my 25th book <laughs> so there's wow. a little, lot of wow. other books out there that people could read the one people read the most is middle passage which came out in 1990 and won the national book award but there are other works out there, story collections, a series of books I do uh, with my daughter called oh, The cool. Adventures uh, of Emory Jones, Boy oh, Science right, Wonder. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a YA books, right, about a little genius kid. And it's named after, you know, my grandson, Emory, The Adventures of Emory Jones, Boy Science Wonder. Now, let me say this, too. Chapman Books in Seattle does those books. They're making the first book in the series, Bending Time, free for kids stuck at home doing remote learning in homes that don't have many books. Oh, that's cool. So the first, second, and third book in the series uh, can also be acquired as a boxed set uh, for schools, you know, and individuals. Cool. That's, that's excellent. That's a, that's a nice program for kids. Um, I want to ask you one more thing. You made me think. So I, I've written a couple books myself. I don't, I don't do it anymore, but I wrote a novel and I wrote a memoir. Oh. Um, and what inspired me to write was uh, – I think the first book that really inspired me to like, this is something I want to do was um, the bluest eye from Toni Morrison. I just, yeah. it was just so poetic and the story was so powerful and just really, really knocked me over. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, there's not a ton of black authors out there. Um, as, uh -huh. one, as one yourself, did you have a, a mentor, a, a, was it important to you to have a, a black writing mentor or was that unimportant to you? Well, actually, there are, I think, a ton of Black American writers, novelists out there. There's a lot. I've written about many of them in a book called Being in Race, Black Writing Since 1970. Um, I read, uh, before I started writing fiction, 
uh, black American novelists of all kinds. I read, I mean, all of them, Richard Wright, uh, Ralph Ellison, um, you know, the Harlem Renaissance uh, writers, the poets like Langston Hughes. Um, yeah, I, I, I immersed myself in that, but I immersed myself also in literature in general. I told you I cut my teeth on science fiction, right? Um, yeah. Because it was uh, something that inspired me and stimulated my imagination. I had a wonderful teacher uh, uh, for one of my novels, uh, looking over my shoulder. His name was John Gardner. He died in a motorcycle accident in 1982, but he was prolific. He was the best writing teacher of our time. The book that most people, I taught this for 33 years to my students, by the way, too. The book that most people know by Gardner is called The Art of Fiction. The Art of Fiction. It has 30 exercises in the back that will hone your craft across you know, fiction or nonfiction. Uh, I recommend it highly to a lot of people. Uh, John Gardner, uh, the author of more than 30 books, a uh, book that was well known at the time was Grendel, which is the story of Beowulf told from the monster's point of view, oh, wow. um, which is really a delightful you know, piece yeah. of work. Yeah, so we, we need models uh, in, in literature, I think, to inspire us. That's true. Yep, yep. All right, yeah, you know what? When I, when I say don't there's not a ton of black authors i guess what i mean is i'm not aware of them oh yeah yes <laughs> a lot believe yeah. a lot, and a whole chunk of them are my friends too we correspond poets you know screenwriters yeah. um novelists short story writers yeah. right now i am serving as guest editor uh for a special issue of chicago quarterly review that will be an anthology of black literature today so I'm receiving wonderful contributions from award-winning black writers, young, old, for example, across you know many genres. So yeah, they're out there. Awesome, awesome. Well, you've been generous with your time. I, I really appreciate it. I've, 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 it. I've gotten some out of this. Um, so thanks for coming on. Maybe we'll do it again sometime when the next book comes out. I hope so. Thank you very much. All right, Dr. Johnson. Thank you. Take care. Now, I just want to remind you that uh, this podcast is brought to you by our new sponsor, CBDMD.com. It's a fantastic product. I I will not do ads for products that I don't use and that I don't like. Like I've told you guys before, I'm not not doing this podcast or this Facebook page to make money. I do it because I enjoy it. But you know, if someone's going to throw money at me, um, I'll take it. If it's something I believe in and something that I use, and I do use this product, it's fantastic on inflammation. As you all know, I've had my spine fused. I've had my shoulder worked on twice, um, two, two surgeries on my shoulder. I've had my left wrist fused, which makes masturbation incredibly hard and painful, so almost not worth it, but, but still worth it. Um, and CBD gets me through all my pains. Um, it's why I'm still able to be 47 and still be this fine, sexy freak that you, that you guys see and know and love. Um, it's from exercise, diet, and CBD oil. So check it out. Use the code that Dad presents. You get 15% off, and you put a little more change in my pocket than what they're paying me to do this ad. All right, guys. Much love.